From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 56. We've had a lot of requests for a catching specific episode, and we finally delivered on that. We've got one of the really bright minds in the catching world talking to us today, a guy I've had a chance to work with in person quite a bit of late, and you're going to see his expertise up close as we talk today. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives, or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest was raised in Washington State and played four years of college baseball among Green River College, Everett Community College, and Central Washington University. He graduated from Central Washington with a Bachelor of Science in Physical Education and School Health. He then coached two years of high school baseball and then returned to Everett Community College as an assistant coach in 2009. He spent 2010 as an assistant coach at Central Washington University and then moved back to Green River College as the head baseball coach for the 2011 season. From 2012 through 2017, he served in various roles for the University of Washington baseball program. In 2015, he founded D1 Catching, an independent catching, coaching, and consultation business. He was hired as a full-time assistant at Santa Clara University in the summer of 2017 and then moved to professional baseball when he was hired by the Minnesota Twins as their minor league catching coordinator in November of 2017. In November of 2019, he was hired by the New York Yankees to serve as their major league quality control coach and catching coordinator. Please welcome to the show, Tanner Swanson. Welcome to the show, Tanner. Hey. Hey Eric, how you doing? I'm Happy good. To be here. I appreciate you helping me uh, pass the time on this quarantine while neither of us can see each other in Tampa or New York. <laughs> no, this is the the next best thing. So I'm I'm 
I'm eager to, to chalk it up a little bit. I think it's a good chance to catch up on continuing education, both for us and then for the rest of the world. So hopefully we can provide some good content. And we've had a lot of actual requests for a catching specific ex- episode. So you're the guy I talk to the most about catching. So you're a logical place to start. So we'll, we'll jump right cool. into let's, it. Let's uh, roll. All right. So let, let's start like big picture first. All right. So what's the most valuable trait that a catcher can offer to his team? Um, you know, I, I think the, the common answer, I've been asked this quite a bit, um, in the past and, you know, similar platforms or, or interviews or, or whatnot. And I think the, the go-to typically is, is leadership. It's field presence. It's, you need somebody who, um, has the ability to manage a staff and to navigate a game and a lineup. Um, and, and while I think all those things are really important, I, I'm not, I wouldn't discredit leadership, um, ever. Um, I, I think probably the key, you know, I think anytime we're talking about players and talking about player development and how we can make adjustments and, and, and improve a, uh, a particular player, um, I, th- and I think everything has to come back to kind of performance. And I, so I think competence is, is probably the most valuable trait. It's are, are you good um, at your job? Do you possess the, the skill sets that are required to play the position? Um, at a high level. And I think if you do those things, if, if you're, if you're a polished, if your skill set is polished and you perform well and you help your team win, um, physically, I think that gives you a greater capacity to then do those other things, to lead others, to, um, you know, to manage, um, be kind of the coach on the field, as you would say. Um, but I think everything needs to come back to performance. It's, it's how well do you perform the tasks that are required, um, to do your job and, I think if you do that, and if that's always the focal point, then um, everything else seems to kind of fall into place. And how, and when you when you talk about you know performance, you obviously stratify that into a number of different categories. So when you when you look at how a catcher performs, like how are you breaking that out? What are your key competencies that you're looking at individually to see where guys can improve or where they may be elite? Um, you know the. The basic, you know, the big three would be the, the receiving, blocking, throwing. I mean, those things um, just by sheer frequency happen the most often. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the most talked about and, and, and usually the most, um, the most trained, I, I would say. Um, and among those things, I think, you know, what impacts performance the, the most is, is pitch framing or receiving. And, and that's gotten, you know, a lot of attention. Um, over the, you know, the last few years more so than, than, uh, you know, Previously, I think just as as uh, you know, metrics advance and, and we have a better understanding of just the impact that a strike or an added strike can have, you know, on in a bat, an inning, you know, throughout the course of a game, throughout the course of a season. Um, I, I think light has been shed on uh, you know guys who do that skill well, and, you know, how big of an impact that has on uh, really the bottom line. So. I think pitch framing is, is the premium. It's not only uh, the skill that you'll do the most often, um, but just from a run value standpoint, it, it has the greatest impact on, uh, on run prevention, you know, which is ultimately, you know, what we're chasing. And obviously that's, that's taken, you know, a, a time to get to the forefront. I mean, nobody was really talking about that, you know, 15 years ago, but I'm curious. So you've gone from obviously the college setting, um, into the professional setting. Now your second organization is, you know, ha- have you, was there a, a moment or a, you know, a specific scenario where you started to observe it? Like, was this as high a, a priority for you while you were at Washington or did it become more apparent when you got to pro ball? 
definitely more apparent once I got into pro ball. Um, you know, I think my time with Minnesota um, was really opened my eyes to um, just the, the possibilities um, in terms of how we can, you know, utilize the information that's at our fingertips to maybe rethink, you know, things that we've done in the past or, or how we can improve training environments and, and potentially even methods that, that we employ, you know, during the game. And, and so when I was at Washington, um, I think like a lot of catching coaches or a lot of coaches in general, like we, I, I really was striving to, to help our guys be generalists in a lot of ways. We wanted to be really good at, at, at everything, at those big three. We wanted to be elite receivers, elite blockers, elite throwers, um, and, and really just trying to create the most dynamic catcher, um, possible. And, and, and I think in some ways I failed our guys by, you know, I think generalists, um, you know, we, we can scratch the surface on a lot of different things, but, but we fail to really nail one thing. And, and I think when I got to Minnesota, uh, really when I got into pro ball, um, that, that one thing or that main thing, um, really became apparent in terms of, you know, what is the most valuable, where do we need to spend, um, a majority of our resources and from, from a training standpoint, um, to really try to reap the most benefits. Um, and that, that is receiving. I think that's, that's pretty clear. I think the cat's out of the bag on that. Um, but I really didn't start thinking in those terms until I jumped into professional baseball and, and now had just access to, to more data, um, more people, more resources, more analysts who can help, who really helped kind of change my perspective. Absolutely. Do you think, uh, you know, when you look to the younger levels, like, you know, is receiving still paramount importance if you're talking about, you know, a, a division three college program or, you know, I mean, we've certainly, I mean, I've seen first round high school kids and it's, you know, catchers are terrified. The hitters are terrified, but you have guys back there that look like they're wearing toasters on their hands trying to receive. Um, and you wind up seeing, you know, 25 strikeouts in a seven inning game because there's so many drop third strikes and base runners as a result of it. So does pitch training, right. does it become de-emphasized at that level where, you know, at the high school ranks, you would focus a heck of a lot more on, on receiving, blocking, or actually just receiving period, not necessarily framing? That's a, that's an interesting question. I think it's, it's, it's complicated. I think it depends ultimately, like, like a lot of things, it depends on the goal, right? If the goal is winning, there's probably more opportunity to add strikes, um, manipulate umpires, uh, stretch the strike zone, mm -hmm. um, by refining a player's receiving ability. Mm -hmm. Um, but often at the younger levels, winning isn't the priority yeah. or it, at least it shouldn't be, you know, it's about development and, mm -hmm and learning the game, um, et cetera. So, um, when that, you know, when that tipping point occurs, um, is I think a, a tricky question that I don't know if I have the answer yeah. to, but, um, I think there's, I think at the younger levels, in my opinion, it would make more sense to really focus on just the fundamental development of, of refining the, the scope of, of, of skills that are required to play the position. And then as you, develop, advance, um, you know, into higher levels, you can really start to prioritize um, which of those skills, you know, become the premium and, and how you can leverage those, That's you know, awesome. more often. And and so you, I mean, obviously you came in at Washington, you came into Minnesota and you've come into New York. When, when you come into a new situation, how do you go about evaluating the catchers on a roster? What are the, what are the first things you like to look at? 
Uh, I look at usually, you know, in two parts, like the first, you know, even before I ever meet a player, um, you know, there's so much information available at this level that, um, you know, you, the, the data, uh, the performance measures will really paint a pretty good picture um, about what this player is, or at least what he is to the industry or the organization um, in terms of how he performs on the field. Um, now that doesn't always tell the whole story. Um, you know, there's other compounding effects of, of being a good teammate and how you work and how you go about your business and how you influence others. And, and so there's, there's obviously multiple layers to this, but I think the foundation is, again, goes back to performance. How do you perform on the field? And I think, you know, it's hard to run from your metrics. It's hard to run from your statistics. And I think now from a defensive standpoint, as we evaluate catchers, um, it's becoming much easier to, to identify, um, you know, who performs at what level and, and who are the elite and who are impacting run prevention the most and who are, who's impacting it the least and, and what are their strengths and weaknesses. Um, and so that's the first thing I, I, I dive into is I try to, to create a profile of, okay, who is this, this person as a player? Um, what do their framing metrics look like? Are there any deficiencies? Um, do their strengths line up to, you know, what, the game's elite strengths are? Are they the same strengths? Um, are they good at the right things, the things that, that impact performance the most, you know, which would be, um, you know, the receiving or, or pitch framing. It's, it's how do they perform um, in that realm? And are there any kind of low hanging fruit um, or quick hitters that things that we could fix quickly to, to maybe draw, um, to, to maybe improve, you know, their framing ability immediately. Is there, is there a, a small adjustment, um, that would yield great gains or, or is, uh, you know, a major transformation or overhaul maybe needed? And, and so who is the player kind of statistically? Um, and then the second piece to that is arguably more important. It's, it's who, it, who is the person and, and trying to, you know, dive into getting to know, um, the player on an individual level and, and gain a better understanding um, for what they value um, and and what makes them tick and and what are things that um, you know how are they are they great self assessors do they realize what their strengths are um, or, or what they struggle with how have they have how has their game changed or evolved over time I think that says a lot about um, a particular individual is are they the same player today as they were three years ago, five years ago, or have they continued to find ways to adapt and evolve? Um, so I think all these things, you know, start to tell you, okay, who is this person and, and how can we um, take the information we know about the individual and about what we know um, about the player and, and how do we find a marriage between those two things and, to ultimately, you know, find that barrier or that, that barrier of entry where, um, you know, we can propose certain adjustments or, or things to, to help, you know, further develop the player moving forward. So I, I think the timing of that is that's the art I think of coaching is, is knowing when that window is present and then how to capitalize on it. Um, you know, when, uh, you know, when the door is open. I'm curious, you, so one of the things that we've 
you know, I, I think inherently this, this podcast becomes somewhat like pitcher bias, um, which is unfair because can't, you can't have a good pitcher without a good catcher. But, um, one of the things that we, you know, we've kind of talked about is like, you know, mechanics are, are incredibly heavily debated, right? Um, you know, people can argue about what's good, what isn't. And for some reason, there's still a lot of coaches that like to go to that first, you know, and, and they want to overhaul things instead of tinkering. So, you know, in that world, you maybe have a scenario where a huge adjustment would be having a pitcher just go to the other side of the rubber, right? It, it completely changes mm-hmm. absolutely everything. Whereas there are subtle, th- subtle things that maybe a little like adjustment to the glove side or maybe starting them a little bit more externally rotated in their hip if they have retrovert hips, some of those things. I'm curious, like for you, you, you alluded to like low hanging fruit versus massive overhauls. Like what's a, what's a low hanging fruit? Is it moving a guy up six inches closer to the plate? Is it, it changing their, their setup so that, you know, they don't have to take such aggressive routes and, you know, wh- what are the low hanging fruits and what are the, what are the dramatic overhauls where you don't want to necessarily jump to them without checking the smaller boxes first? I think, uh, you know, some of the lower hanging fruit would be, okay, what are we doing, you know, from a, um, a glove rhythm standpoint or a trigger, you know, how do we get ready to receive the pitch? And, and I think a lot of guys, um, sometimes, um, have too drastic of, of pre-pitch glove rhythms where their, their glove is, is, is doing a lot of different things in, in preparation to catch. And, and a lot of times, you know, at diminished returns, it's, it's taking, it's, it's creating poor angles or, um, poor timing, you know, so trying to maybe simplify or, or discover, um, some type of pre-pitch rhythm or lack thereof, you know, to get our glove in a really good position, um, to again, make the main thing, the main thing to, to receive the pitch on time, you know, with a good angle, working the ball back to the plate, et cetera. So, uh, that's, that's one thing I look at immediately. And I think a lot of times guys who struggle to receive pitches at the bottom of the strike zone, it, you, you could draw a direct correlation to what their glove is doing, you know, during the pitcher's delivery. And, and often the glove is climbing. It's, it's working up to then down. Um, and, and sometimes if we kind of reverse engineer that or, or look further, you know, back the chain, um, you know, we can make some modifications to what the glove is doing to, to hopefully put it in a better position as we, as we work to the attack. So that would be, um, probably a low hanging fruit. The, the big one for me, and, and you could argue that this is uh, an easy adjustment or an overhaul um, it, on the surface, it appears to be an overhaul, but I think making stance modifications um, can really transform, you know, uh, a player's ability to, to receive. And, and I think often um, catchers, I think at all levels are, are always battling their stances and they're battling their body and, and, tinkering i think even guys that are you know in the late you know later stages of their college career early professional career still don't have a ton of confidence in their stance you know by traditional standards it's it's they're they're making adjustment to their secondary um, my glove elbow is it feels restricted you know to my, against my left knee you know how do i create clearance how do i create freedom i feel stuck you know these it's it's a kind of a constant battle and i think um you know, one thing that, that we really developed in Minnesota, and I think, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of, I guess, credit for this, but I think it was a lot of people involved that, that, uh, you know, came together and, and started to kind of rethink catcher setups and, and, and getting a catcher to a knee or, and finding kind of what is an optimal receiving position and then learning how to do our other skills from that position. I think, 
um, for a long time, you know, we as an industry kind of attacked the problem maybe backwards where it was, hey, let's let's learn how to to receive out of our best blocking and throwing position. Um, and I think what what the challenges that presents is that it compromises our ability to to receive. And and I think if you look at framing metrics and, and this was we're probably getting ahead of ourselves here, but this was kind of an aha moment for me. Um, is when I started diving into stances and, and trying to figure out, okay, what is, what is optimal? What is not optimal? Um, you know, across the industry, pitch framing metrics drastically decline, um, with runners on base. So that would be a scenario where catchers universally for the longest time would, would set up in a, a traditional secondary stance, which was kind of an up ready stance. Um, which was perceived to be a better position to block and throw from. Um, but still out of that position, a majority of the, of the skill required or the skill that we can expect to, to be utilized the most is, is receiving. We still receive, um, more out of that secondary stance than we do anything else. And, and, and if we know that, that our framing regresses from these positions and we know that, um, framing is the most valuable and we're still not going to block and throw very often, you know, it, it really made me question, why do we ever get into these positions? It, it was, um, you know, seemed counterproductive in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, and then that really led me down the path to, Hey, can we learn to, to block and throw from our best receiving position? If that's a one knee setup, great. Can we learn how to block and throw from this position? Um, and I, I think we're proving you know, and you're seeing this trend kind of spread throughout the industry that it is possible. And in, in a lot of cases, it might even be a more optimal blocking position and or throwing position um, as well. But and that's that's been hard for a lot of people to kind of wrap their heads around um, because it's different. It's it was perceived as lazy for the longest time. Um, I think another misconception is that, hey, we don't you know, if you're doing that, you don't care about blocking and throwing. And I, I don't think that's, you know, a true representation of, of what's happening. Um, so I, I think, you know, for a guy like Mitch Garber, who, you know, you know, you and I have talked about in the past, it's, you know, that was a relatively easy adjustment for him. It was, you know, so you could call that a low hanging fruit mm -hmm. or, you know, conceptually, it's a completely different position. Um, but I think a lot of players like, that in my experience, you know, when you put them in some alternative positions, you know, if you, when you put them in a knee down position, um, they feel really comfortable almost, you know, right away. And it's almost like they've been freed up. And, and a lot of guys have looked at me saying, this is, we're allowed to do this. Like I, <laughs> I've, I've wanted, I've wanted to do this for a long time and I was never allowed to. And, you know, so there was constraints, you know, put on catchers for a long time that they had to, to do it, you know, one way which was you know the way the, the perceived optimal way in in the past and and so my long-winded answer there is that i think the stance is really really critical and, and a lot of times it inhibits our ability to do certain things specifically you know receive and specifically receive pitches at the bottom of the strike zone which is you know the key i think it's interesting too because I think where the data revolution has been unique is you hear about guys who, you know, from pitch design standpoint, they understand why they should switch to a four seam from a two seam or something like that, where the, the data leads the the player to, to some of these solutions. I feel like with pitch framing, it's something where the, the players were screaming at it, 
at us for, for years about it. I can remember, you know, one of our big leaders talking about one of the more well-known uh, catchers in the game, you know, who's sensationalized for basically throwing guys out. And I remember talking to him like, oh, he gets so lazy back there. You know, we lose so many strikes from him. And I mean, this is, this is seven, eight years ago. Um, and it was almost like the players were waiting for the metrics to just come out and be like, this is actually important. Would you agree that they've, they've sensationalized like the throwing aspect of the game so much that we've probably missed out on a lot of really, really good catchers over the years? Without question. I think, um, you know, for the longest time it was the, it was, the only thing that you could really quantify, you know, from a scouting standpoint and, and you could, you could put a number on it and, and it was easy to grade, you know? Um, and, and the other stuff was just much more subjective. And I think, I think a lot of scouts would even tell you that it was, it's, it was a really difficult thing and it is still a really difficult thing at the amateur level to, to really, you know, put your thumb on and say, no, this guy is going to be an elite, you know, professional receiver. I think, the industry now, the awareness level is, is higher than it's ever been. Um, but I think it's still difficult or challenging to, you know, evaluate it at the, at the younger levels. Um, but I think, I think, uh, uh, the industry, I think has changed the per- perception that a, the, the, the classic catch and throw guy who, who's got a big arm, um, and is, looks really athletic in the gear. Um, but maybe doesn't hit, you know, because the, the offensive profile traditionally at the position has been, you know, really low. I think that's really shifting. I think most organizations now are looking for an offensive player, you know, a player with a, with a higher offensive ceiling, um, who can receive the baseball and receive it well and can get into, into good positions to do so. And I think the value of the arm has, you know, is, is maybe lower on the totem pole than it was, you know, for, for a long time. I'm curious, like, how do you, what current software are you using to evaluate pitch framing, you know, both professionally, but also in the amateur ranks? Are, are we, are we there yet or is there a long way to go? I think there's still a long way to go. I think, I think the metrics now tell us, um, you know, who's good and who's not good. Um, but, but there's still a lot, um, to be learned about, you know, the why, you know, what are the movement qualities that, that are correlated to good pitch framers or bad pitch framers? Um, you know, so we don't know specifically, you know, what movements, um, are optimal. I think in a lot of ways, even myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. And a lot of it is trial and error. And I think trial and error has, and that this was something again that was really pushed on me in Minnesota. It was almost mandated, um, that if you wait to know something is, is right, then, you know, you'll, you'll probably never start. And, and, um, I think the industry for a long time was, um, I think resistant to experimenting with new things, you know, and, and I think that's completely changed in, in, in recent years and, and experimentation is promoted and, and especially in the minor leagues where, Hey, let's, let's do some things. Let's act, um, and, and see what we learn. And, and we're not always going to be right. And that's good. And, and we'll make adjustments, um, as we go. So, um, but, but I think for me, you know, as we, as we search for, Hey, what, what's optimal, what's not optimal. Um, it's really, we're gaming towards, you know, the, the metrics in a lot of ways. It's, we know that's the end goal is we're trying to create more strikes. If we do X, you know, we can do X for a certain period of time and, and we can, 
monitor the the results. Are we gaining more strikes than we were previously or not? And, and try to draw some causation. Um, and, and I think one of the great things about framing metrics is that, is that they stabilize, you know, relatively quickly compared to a lot of other metrics um, out there. I think just, again, based on the sheer frequency, a catcher receives so many pitches yeah. that it doesn't take long to, to know whether, you know, an adjustment, it, you know, was meaningful, um, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas from a hitting standpoint or a pitching standpoint, it's, it takes a much longer um, period of time to, to really draw conclusions that, Hey, yeah, this added leg kick or, you know, this adjustment we made in the weight room to get this guy a little bit more external rotation is, is, is led to, you know, this impact on his performance. I think it's much harder to do in other spaces. Um, whereas in pitch framing, it can be done relatively quickly. And, and that's kind of the approach I took um, and, and continue to take. It's, it's, let's make some adjustments, let's make some refinements, and then let's, let's look at the results and then, and, and just rinse and repeat and, and hopefully continue to, you know, make sure our trend line is moving, you know, up is, is the end goal. Is there, um, I mean, it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it seems like there's much less variability in the catching world, right? So, you know, you go to pitchers, right? You've got guys who are throwing submarine, you have sidearm guys, you have, you know, super high release points. You have guys that, that do a dramatically different things and you have to be really careful with it because you might, you know, try to coach the different out of somebody and all of a sudden they lose deception or they, they lose, you know, some kind of elite secondary pitch, whatever, as you try to make them a truly efficient four seam or something like that. So right. I'm, I'm curious though, is, are there some, how much negotiable, how negotiable is a catching stance? You know what I mean? Or a setup? Are there guys that do things when you watch major league games who do things horrifically wrong in terms of either their body positioning, um, or their, their, you know, their glove path to the baseball that still project out well from a metric standpoint? Or is it one of those things where the, the, the actions pretty much line up with the outcomes? I think the later, I mean, there's, there's certainly outliers where there's guys, um, that, you know, you'd look at and say visually that doesn't look right. It, it doesn't look like, you know, so and so or, or other, um, players that are perceived as elite or, or, or measure up at, to be elite, you know, according to the metrics. And, um, but they still perform at a high level. And I think those are unique cases and, mm-hmm. and, and I've, I've struggled. I've, I've encountered some of those guys, um, you know, in the past and, and there's this internal struggle that, Hey, I think if we do this, even, you know, it can help him even more. And, and, um, but there, you do run the risk of, well, do you take away, you know, what he's already good at? And, mm-hmm. and, but I think for the most part, like generally, you know, the, the actions line up with, you know, if you, if you do these things, if we get in really good positions, if our timing's right, if, if our glove um, works from below the ball, if we, if we really focus on dominating the bottom third of the strike zone and make that our strength, then everything else kind of comes into place. And I think, um, guys, at the, at the end of the day, if, if they do uh, a core set of things well, you know, we'll perform overall well um in the grand scheme of things this is more probably more of a rhetorical statement than a question but uh, especially because we get to work together but what what type of communication is there with a strength conditioning staff slash medical staff um in your history when you're working with a catcher do, do you if you see a limitation in physical abilities how do you work you know to improve that 
I think it's, it's, it's huge and, it, and it's, it's critical to, to this whole process. And I think especially because of the approach we're taking, um, in terms of setups and, and encouraging guys to get into, um, you know, whether it's a one knee setup or some type of kickstand or, or positions that maybe they, um, haven't got into in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, it's, it's uncharted territory and we don't have a, a long history of, of players that have, um, been catching, you know, within this style to say that, uh, or to really know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that communication is, is a, a critical piece to understanding, um, a, how are they responding, you know, and, and w- what kind of modifications can we make in the weight room to maybe access some more range of motion or to, um, improve recovery or whatever the case may be. Um, but then also like, what are their movement assessments tell us about the positions that we are asking them to get into and, and, and get out of, um, and if we're asking them to block from a knee down position and, and they need to, um, sit in a certain way and they need to create the right leverage with their off leg to drive or propel their body laterally, like what kind of limitations, um, do we see that might prevent them from being able to do that? And, and then the, the more important question is, what do we do about that? Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, Gary Sanchez, for example, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not trying to make him Mitch Garver. At least I'm not. That's not my goal. He, he's, he needs to be the best version of Gary Sanchez. And, and so on the surface, that might look similar and people can draw those conclusions, you know, outside of our organization. But internally, that's, that's not what, that's not my goal. It's, and their bodies are built differently. And I, and I've already ran into some roadblocks where, um, man, this is what worked for me in the past with guys like Mitch and, for whatever reason, this doesn't feel right. And, um, and we need to figure out a different way to do it. And, and so you, 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 we, we start to explore, you know, maybe movement solutions that we haven't even, you know, seen in the past or that I haven't coached in the past that kind of just develop organically again through that trial and error process. But I think that conversation, um, needs to include the, the S and C staff to, to figure out why you know, there's limitations and, and, or why it's really easy to get into this position, um, and, and, and why we should encourage more of it. Um, or do we need to take a step back and, and kind of rethink the positioning and, and, you know, maybe search somewhere else for a, a better solution? Yeah. And in terms of just, uh, we have like a lot of like physical therapists and athletic trainers that listen. This is one of the things that you, you appreciate about the one knee and the, the, um, you know, the kickstand approach is like a kickstand's probably going to require like some more hip internal rotation, you know, and, uh, the one knee is going to probably require a lot more hip abduction. And certainly both of those are going to be heavily impacted by how well you can posteriorly tilt your pelvis. So there's a, a lot of moving parts. Um, whereas right. I, I think a traditional setup was just kind of hang out in the sagittal plane. You need a little bit of hip internal rotation to squat deep. But then you didn't have a whole lot of adjustability, you know, on, on pitches that right. you had to adapt to because they were, you know, misfires from the pitcher or there were balls in the dirt that you had to get down to block. So, you know, the, the advent of new stances and an increased focus on framing in a lot of ways has made it even more important that the strain conditioning and medical staffs are really have their catchers ready. I mean, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I always tell folks like from, in terms of both volume and amplitude, Catchers have it worse than anybody on the field. They, they pretty much play every day. They've still got to hit. Mm-hmm. They still got to throw. They still got to run. 
Um, but they've got to hang out in a deep squat position for, for three and a half hours. Um, no it's, doubt. it's physically demanding. So it's, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, no question. It's, it's probably the, the, you know, not just physically, but it's probably the most demanding job, maybe in sport, you know, when you start to layer in, you know, all the other responsibilities that these guys have too, from a, a game planning and, um, game calling and game calling reviews and, and advanced hitter meeting. Uh, I mean, there's just, there's, they're, they're stretched in, in terms of, of time. Um, and then add in, you know, the, the, the maintenance work that they need to do in the weight room and the recovery stuff. And it's just, there's a lot on these guys' plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my mind, you know, I think that the style or approach that, that we're taking, one of my goals is that it's, it's going to relieve some of that stress and we're going to get into, to, you know, this knee down position is going to be over the course of time, less stressful and, and, and hopefully, um, you know, take less of a toll on our body and allow us to, to really maintain, um, throughout the, not only the course of a game, but the course of a, a long professional season. Um, so we don't peak or wear down, you know, towards the end when it matters the most and, and we can, get in a really comfortable position, a repeatable position that, that we can, again, just make the main thing, the main thing and, and, and kind of build everything, you know, off that foundation. A while back, you, you made a comment. I actually have the email I'm reading it from, but you said, uh, you mentioned like an aha moment where, you know, and you already referred to like from a framing standpoint that, um, there shouldn't be this regression in framing with runners on base. Um, and once you appreciate that, you talked about getting down that path and starting to focus on merging different stances together until you realize that mm-hmm. you can make later decisions on secondary skills and thus stay committed to receiving longer. So right. uh, elaborate on that a little bit more for me. It's like, did, did it change the way that you prepared guys as well? Like when you made that realization? No question. I, I, I presented at the, at the ABCA convention in Anaheim, um, several years ago, I think it was maybe 2017. Um, and I, I'd tell any listeners to, to scrap that presentation. If I had to get up there again, <laughs> it would be, it would be completely different. And, and hopefully if I, you know, if I said the same thing five years from now, like, you know, whatever I'm saying today would, would also change. That, that's just, I think a goal of mine is to try to continue to adapt and evolve. But, but when I was at Washington, my entire goal, like I said previously, was to try to create really dynamic, versatile catchers who could do everything. And, and in that, a lot of our training and much of my presentation was about creating chaos and variability in training to try to kind of promote decision making, the ability to, to read, react and respond to, is it a block? Is it a throw? Is it a reception? Um, and, and really blending all those skills together ultimately to try to improve, you know, a catcher's perceptual skills or their ability to make that decision maybe earlier in the process. And, and although I think that was a noble goal and I think our guys did get better at the drills themselves, I I think research is still pretty fuzzy on how much you can really impact those perceptual skills. I'm sure you can to some degree, but, um, but my, my point is, is, is the, one of the reasons that, this position is so hard, especially by traditional methods is that catchers are always caught in between. And this is why you see this regression in pitch framing with runners on base is is because catchers are up in this ready stance or this secondary stance and pitchers are continuing to evolve and get better. And and so this position is not getting easier. It's getting, 
it's getting harder than it's ever been. And guys are throwing better breaking balls in terms of movement quality, harder breaking balls and more of them. Um, and, and so often, you know, with runners on base and, and we call it breaking ball and the guy throws a slider that's just below the zone, you see catchers routinely, you know, from these traditional stances that are falling to a knee anyway. And because they're caught in between, is this ball going to bounce? If it is going to bounce, I need to make a commitment, you know, somewhere out of the hand, you know, in, in that first third of ball flight, I need to, to make a commitment. So I have enough time to execute my move from this up stance down to the ground. Um, is, or is it not going to bounce? Do I need to prioritize the catch? And, and so catchers are, are kind of stuck in this middle ground all the time. Um, and as a result, they, they don't catch that pitch that is just below the zone that maybe we could convert to a strike because there's an element of, man, it might bounce and I need to maybe get to the ground to block it. And, and so they're caught in between. They're hedging between receiving and blocking. Um, and as a result, they lose pitches, you know, at the bottom of the strike zone. And the bottom of the strike zone is key. And the best pitch framers in the game all universally are good down. And I think it's largely because there's just more pitches taken down. You know, when we throw up in the zone, generally we're, we're, we're throwing up to induce swings and, and that's becoming, um, a very trendy thing and a very effective thing is, is the four seam at the top of the zone. And a lot of guys are doing that, but it's not the area we're trying to steal strikes. It's we're trying to induce swings. Um, so more pitches are taken at the bottom. You're seeing more breaking balls or off speed pitches are now becoming. Uh, more predominant than, than fastballs. And, and so generally breaking balls, non-fastballs end up down in the strike zone. So there's just more opportunities to receive at the bottom. And so if we're doing anything that compromises our ability to capture those pitches well, then we're, we're costing our team, you know, runs, you know, we're, we're not doing our job um, effectively. And so what happened when, when we, when we started exploring these one knee setups and putting guys in, in one knee positions is now we've, we merged together our receiving and our blocking stances. We didn't have to make a decision in that first third of ball flight or right out of hand. Is this ball going to bounce or not? Do I need to get into this other position to execute, you know, a ball in the dirt? Um, now our positions are the same. Our block and receive stance are the same. And, and the only transition is really rolling the glove over and maybe making a, a slight lateral move, you know, with our torso to try to square the pitch up. So now, because we have less to do, that decision happens way later in the process. And, and we don't have to make a decision out of the hand. And now we're not hedging between the two. Um, the block now just becomes an extension of the catch. It's not a separate skill. It's catch, 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 all the way up until the last um, last few feet when we recognize it's going to bounce and we roll over and, and we make our, our adjustment from there. So what it's allowed, what, what I found, um, and the metrics would, would line up with this is that catchers began, you know, optimizing the bottom of the strike zone much better with runners on base. And that had pretty meaningful, you know, compounding impacts over the course of the game, um, in their overall ability as well. Now, this is obviously happening at the big league level. There are more and more guys that are trying it out. Um, and it's probably just a matter of time until it starts trickling down to the college ranks where pitch framing is, you know, certainly important in a lot of scenarios. So I'm curious, like, are, are there mistakes that player that you can see coaches or catchers making as they try to attack some of these new setups? Um, like where, where you see that 
you know, this, this 19 year old kid who's going to get thrown at him. He's going to struggle originally. He's going to think it's the setup and not how it was taught or how it was approached, or he maybe just didn't give it time to actually learn it. I think it's much more complex. Um, in my opinion and in my experience now, you know, two plus years into this process, um, I'm still making adjustments and refining um, the, the smallest of details, you know, within this kind of system. Um, I think it's a mistake just to say or make the blanket statement that, hey, if you just get on a knee, you'll be a better pitch framer. And, and, and I think I'm not to say that that's what most coaches are doing, but you are seeing this trend kind of spread throughout the game. Um, and, and what I would advise is that that uh, coaches really dive into to trying to figure out, okay, what are the nuances that, that really matter here? Um, what's the timing of the move? You know, how can we ensure that we do have some lateral range if we do have to block? Uh, how do we make sure we're not tipping pitches? We're not only setting up a certain way for certain types of pitches. Um, you know, can we throw? Can we block? Can we do all these other, you know, secondary skills um, but I think if you just, you know, throw them to the wolves and say, Hey, get on a knee and framing is the only thing that matters, you know, good luck. If it's in the dirt, just do your best. I, I think that's, you know, probably not the right approach. I think you, you still need to teach. We, we still block every day. Mm-hmm. And again, I, like I've said, I think blocking is just an extension of catching. It's just an extension of receiving. So it's, it's built into, it's, it's a reception in my, in my mind. Um, so anytime we're doing receiving work, almost always it is blended with, you know, occasional balls in the dirt. And we're, we're constantly blending those two skills together. Um, you know, and with that is there's a lot of really intentional things that we're doing to, to make sure we can do both of those things, you know, at a really high level. It's uh, the misperson, the misconception out there publicly is that, you know, we're just punting. This style is just, we're punting on blocking or punting on throwing. And it's all about pitch framing. And although that is true to a certain degree, you know, I, I still get bothered when we miss a block. Like it's still personally, I take a hit. Like, like, man, maybe I didn't prepare them well enough to be able to handle. That's still a part of what um, catchers need to do at a high level. Um, and so you need to train it and you need to teach it. And, um, you know, but you need to maybe rethink, you know, some of the absolutes that, that you've held on to for a long time in terms of what that's supposed to look like. And I think when you can get p- past kind of the perception of what it looks like and, and really dig in on, you know, what are the specific, you know, movements that are required to, to execute that skill from maybe a new position, you know, then you can start, you know, gaining some ground, I think. I love that. And, and building on that, it, you know, right now, obviously, though, the world has come to a halt. They're playing tons of, you know, old games on TV, classics. Um, and, and so there's a great chance to not just watch elite pitchers, but watch the, the spectacular catchers that were receiving them. Is there a perfect catcher or, you know, are there guys in the big leagues that use an example where young catchers would be wise to, to watch them? And, and, and if so, what, what are you watching for? Um, when you tell someone to go, you know, see someone do their thing? Uh, just a quick side comment there on the first part of that question it's i'm getting i get texts almost daily from from these old time games that are Mm -hmm. you know you see catchers in the 70s and 80s Mm -hmm. um on a knee and guys taking screenshots and sending to me saying (laughs) hey see you're not that smart you didn't invent this it's been around for and and 
which is absolutely true. I, I didn't invent the one knee setup by any means. I don't claim to. It's been around for a long time. Um, and it was just never executed with nobody on, or with runners on base. I think that's where, um, I think intuitively, even though we didn't have metrics back then, catchers got into the, those positions because it was comfortable. And I, and I, I, I wouldn't, I think it'd be naive to say that, Hey, they were only doing it because they were tired and they were trying to take a load off or they were being lazy or no, that they got into those positions because intuitively it felt right. It felt comfortable. They could get into a really low position where they could, you know, handle the low strike and, and no, we couldn't measure it at the time. Um, but you saw a lot of catchers, you know, utilizing it. And, and now that we have the ability to measure it, um, and we can say, yes, when we get in these positions, we capture more strikes. Let's do that more often and, and let's do it universally in, in a lot of cases. So, um, anyway, um, I, I think there's a lot of really good examples. I think, you know, I'm biased, obviously, but I think this is a really exciting time for our position. I think you're seeing there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of new ideas, good and bad, um, that are kind of pushing or challenging the status quo and, and forcing guys like myself to kind of rethink things and explore new ideas. And, and you're seeing that not only at the amateur level, but at the highest level, you're seeing guys, um, you know, like Mitch Garber, like now Gary Sanchez, like, um, you'll see Wilson Contreras doing some new things with what Craig Drivers, um, you know, he's, he's worked, he's recently was added to the Cubs staff and, and doing work there. Um, Rilamudu and, and, and the transformation he's made in the past, guys like Tucker Barnhart. Like there's a, there's a lot of really good examples of guys who were perceived as, uh, maybe not that good at, at, at pitch framing who have completely transformed, you know, the narrative, um, you know, but they've taken more of an aggressive approach in, in the public eye, you know, by experimenting with some alternative methods and, and are yielding really, really positive results from it. And I think that says a lot about those individual players. And I think it sends a really positive message to amateur players that, Hey, there's more than one way to do things. And, um, it's important that you continue to adapt and evolve as the game does as well. And, and I think players should, should be, you know, trying to rediscover or redefine who they are as players, you know, without completely losing their identity, but, but being open to continuing to grow, I think is what separates kind of the good from the great. That's awesome. All right. So when we wrap up, we always do a lightning round. So these are uh, quick questions and you can be as long as you want with the answer. Um, so you didn't, you didn't prep me. You didn't prep me on this one. Oh, that's that's right, man. This is lightning round. You got to be on your toes. So, <laughs> who's who's a catcher of yesterday? Someone who's retired that we never realized was so good because he played in an era where we couldn't actually quantify how good he was. Easy, Dan Wilson. I'm, right. a, I'm a Seattle Northwest uh, Homer, <laughs> so Dan Wilson. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one out myself. Craig Alberness, only because Alby is an amazing guy. He's the bullpen slash catching coach for the Giants. And everybody in the Rays organization raved about throwing to Craig all the way up to the minor leagues. And he never sniffed the big leagues because he was undersized. Um, yep. guy, guy was an amazing receiver and, and a, an incredible arm too. So, all right, Albie, we love you. Um, lessons for a young Tanner Swanson. When you were first coming up as a coach, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to yourself in your first year of coaching? Um, be more observant. I think that's something I learned along the way was to, to, you know, it's okay to, to 
take your eyes off your clipboard or your stopwatch and, you know, pay attention to, to what the player is actually doing and how they're performing. I think I really, you know, took another step in my career when I, not, not that I, I minimized the preparation. You still have a plan going into any session. Um, but the ability to adapt and, um, evolve, you know, or manipulate that plan uh, based on what you're observing, I think is what makes a, a good coach. And I, I strive to do, you know, it's a, it's a continual, um, you know, focus for me is to be really in tune with what's really happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't do that early in my career. It was more about staying on, on task and, and getting from drill four to drill five and, and X amount of time under, you know, X amount of reps. And it was much more scripted and, and less organic. That's awesome. All right. So give me a book that you think every player should read. Uh, the main thing or the one thing I think it's called, um, you know, I can't even tell you who the author is. Um, it's been a year or two since I read it, but, um, it was kind of right in the middle of, you know, my introduction to professional baseball. Um, just about, um, really about if you try to tackle lots of different things and you create these to-do lists that are really thorough, that, um, you, you really fail to, to really nail anything, you know? And, and so for me, it's, it's been about, and, and I got criticized, you know, and probably continue to be criticized for a long time. Um, you know, people used to tell me, you know, aren't you worried about you're putting all your eggs in this one basket, you know, as a catching instructor or catching coach, um, you know, that's how you're perceived. Um, you know, do you think that's going to hurt you? Like, and, and, and for me, it was always like, I'd rather try to be great at something than to be kind of the jack of all trades or a guy who's a generalist in a lot of ways and, and does a lot of things okay, but, you know, never really made any real contributions in any one area. And so um, this book just kind of reinforces that concept of, of really kind of becoming hyper-focused on something, you know, striving to master that. Um, and, and I think that's kind of, it, it's been good, good perspective for me to, to kind of stay in line with, uh, you know, personal goals that, that I have and to continue to try to refine my craft. And I think um, there, there's an interesting asterisk that I'm going to add because I've, I've been around. So we first met up in 2015 with team USA. Um, yep. Sean Cole to his credit had you, me and Matt Blake all, uh, all on his, uh, his staff helping out before anybody knew who the heck we were. Um, right. and, but I would tell you is you spoke languages with every department there, right? You're super well read on the strength conditioning side of things. You've been in that world, you know, from a skill development standpoint, you just weren't a guy who at, at age 22 decided you were going to be a catching instructor. Like you, you were a generalist and then you specialized later. And I think that's an important lesson. Like you right, have to right. learn about the psychology of coaching, player interaction, all that stuff before you can just go down one specific rabbit hole really, really deeply. So you need to, you need Absolutely. to put some, put some, fe- I'm going to put some fe- in your cap in that regard, just to qualify your recommendation. <laughs> yeah, along a, a funny story though, yeah. 2015, Matt, Matt and I were were sharing a, a, a cot together. That our friend Sean Cole couldn't even get us our own bedrooms. We, we 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 slept in his room with him, side by side on cots. You know, and that was only about five years ago, and now we're both uh, working for the New York Yankees. So Very things cool. can happen fast. It's uh, 
kind of a cool story. Absolutely. All right. So last one, if there are any middle school, high school or college catchers listening to this, what advice would you give them in terms of separating themselves from the rest of the pack? Uh, my half jokingly answer is, is hit. You know, I think the best way, the best way to separate yourself is to improve your offensive profile. I think that is becoming more and more important, um, for the position, especially if we, if we see the adoption of, of an electronic strike zone, um, it's going to become, you know, a position where if you don't hit, you don't, you don't catch. And I think it's already trending in that direction. Um, you know, the two greatest areas where you can impact winning um, is pitch framing and is hitting. And I think that's kind of the, the, the approach that most scouting departments, I would say, um, are looking through those lenses in terms of uh, finding players who fit those, those profiles, um, not just for professional baseball, but the reason professional scouts are attracted to those skills is because those skills impact winning and, and therefore that that transcends any level and if you're trying to to really separate yourself as an amateur player to get to um to to college baseball i think you know the, increasing your offensive profile um will never hold you back and it'll help get your foot in the door um teaching hitters is really really hard i think i have an easy job relative to um, you know, the hitting coaches of the world, I think that's a, a really tough space. And, and I have a ton of respect for the coaches out there who, uh, who do it at a high level because it's, it's a really complicated problem. And, um, and I think hitters in a lot of ways, you know, have always hit and, and, uh, you know, they've hit from a young age and you don't get to professional baseball as a poor hitter and then just decide that, Hey, I'm going to make this adjustment and, and, and and figure it out. I, I think those there's there's outlier guys who have made big transformations and, and seen great results, but um, you know those guys typically were really good hitters, you know, before they made those adjustments. And so um, hit, get in the cage. That's a great advice, and it's a great place to end this. Wanted to say thank you very much for taking the time. Um, folks can find you on Twitter. It's at Tanner Swanson. It's always good content. You, uh, you're good about putting your own stuff out there and retweeting some entertaining stuff. So always uh, contributing back to the body of knowledge. Um, thanks so much for taking the time, Tanner. This was excellent. Cool, Eric. Thanks, man. I appreciate you. We'll, we'll see you soon, hopefully. Uh, hopefully. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.